What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, with that being said, why don't we all um, turn in our Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Just keep in mind as we go through this study that the next three and a half hours will be a little bit, <laughs> little bit fun. But while we are turning there, I want to just give a little background. Um, John chapter 8, well, we'll even, even go further. The Gospel of John is really the gospel that declares Jesus' divinity. It's Jesus making a whole bunch of I am statements. You know, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world, which is kind of what we're looking at tonight. Um, And even just I am, meaning, you know, claiming to be God. So in um, John chapter 8, the Jews were questioning Jesus. He's in the temple. And they say, um, you know, we can't trust you. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. And you say you're older than him. And he's like, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And then they're like, oh, we're going to stone him because he claimed to be God, right? He claimed to be divine. He claimed to be self-existing. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Uh, The last two verses of chapter 8 says, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, so they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we read that, um, and keep in mind when you read the Bible always, that chapter breaks aren't um, necessarily inspired. They're added later just for referencing. So read it as, Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, and as he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Um, so a couple things before we actually get into this. Just this is obviously a lot more relaxed. Of a, I like to have a more relaxed study. So if you have questions or thoughts or concerns, Totally feel free to raise your hand. I mean, we all know each other here. So first thing, Jesus comes right out of the temple and says, as he passed by, as he's on his way, fleeing, it seems, he sees a man blind from birth. Um, Obviously recognize this is a one-sided interaction at first, that Jesus is the initiator. There's this guy blind. He's a beggar probably by the temple steps. Um, And Jesus sees him. And it says he's blind from birth. The disciples also see him. They see Jesus, see him. You know, they see Jesus lock his eyes on him. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, or teacher, as everyone knows, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what they're asking is kind of a a question of, um, you know, evil. Why is there evil? Why is there sin and wickedness? And it's actually kind of a Jewish idea that the more you sinned, the more you would have suffering in your life, the more specifically, you know, you have a specific sin, God will answer with a specific, um, you know, calamity or trial. Um, And we know that's not the case. 
all the time. We know that all suffering is a result ultimately of Genesis 3, the fall, that because sin is in the world, we know that there is suffering. But we also, on the other hand, know that there is suffering that comes from, um, you know, your individual wickedness. And there is suffering that comes directly from sin. Um, if you, you know, are caught up doing drugs and you get caught, we know that your prison sentence is a direct result of the sin of, you know, breaking the law, having your mind filled with things and drugs and wickedness. Does that make sense? So we know there's those things. But what they're asking is, is there such thing as a, like a pre-birth sin? You know, who sinned? This baby in the womb that he was born blind or his parents did? Because his parents did a specific sin, was there a reason for his blindness? Now, we know that God is sovereign overall. I know this is kind of like, where is he going with this? We know God is sovereign overall. I just, I don't know. I think it's a question that you should have answers for. So ultimately, sin is from, or calamity is from sin. But we know God is sovereign. We know that he... You know, he, nothing comes to us that he doesn't first appoint. And so we see a couple of reasons in the Bible from Scripture for God's um, bringing suffering, for God bringing um, calamity in your life. And so I want to just think about a couple of those. It is a tougher concept that God brings. I mean, this guy's blind from birth. God brought disability into his life before he had a choice, before he had um, any say in the matter. I mean, it's not that he was you know, throwing rocks at little girls and he became blind. It's that he was born, born blind from birth. And also note that the disciples know who he is. Everyone knows who he is because, like I was saying, culturally that time, there's this understanding that, well, someone sinned. So God struck him for the sin of either himself early in the womb or from, you know, his parents. So everyone knows who this guy is and the culture would have this view of there's a reason for your suffering. You're not this innocent, perfect person. So a couple reasons why they're suffering. Um, I think there's ultimately to bring glory to himself. We've been looking at that with Pharaoh in Exodus, that God says, hey, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I can show my glory over him, so that I can triumph over him. For the believer, um, in Luke 15, you see that the suffering of the prodigal son brings him to remembrance the goodness of his father. You see that there is a direct result of I recognize that the suffering was brought on by myself, and it you know, causes us to turn back to God. Um, also, and um, I believe it was, I'm sorry, Romans 5, um, it talks about that, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn that, I had it kind of like half memorized, but I think that's always a bad thing. So in Romans 5, it says, therefore we have obtained peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have this peace, through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But only that, we rejoice in what? In our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul brings out that suffering, it glorifies God, but it also produces something. It does something to us. When you suffer, you endure. And when you endure, you have character built into you. And character brings that hope. So we know that suffering is not just, it, it's not for no reason. We know that the believer who suffers has an opportunity to glorify God through that suffering. So when the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sins, this man or his parents, 
They're asking for the cause of the suffering. But Jesus, he answers, it's not that they sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. As uh, John Piper said, they ask for the cause of his calamity, but Jesus answers to the purpose. The explanation of the blindness lies not in the past causes, but in the future purposes. So in the same way, just as an application, if you're going through some trial, some form of pain or suffering that you feel is just or unjust, recognize that there's an opportunity you know, to come to the Lord and to glorify the Lord through people around you. So Jesus doesn't answer their reason. He just moves right on through it. It's so that God will be glorified. It's not from a sin. It's that God has a plan and a purpose for this man's disability. Now, I want you to think about the blind guy and just, you know, you close your eyes, you think about what it would be like to be blind. And I don't know. I just, I've never had that thought. I've never gone a day with my eyes shut. You know, but this guy, every moment of his life is you know, walking around, maybe bumping into things. So Jesus sees him. And also notice at this point, the blind guy hasn't said anything. He hasn't interacted in any way. Jesus' desire to work this miracle that we're going to see is, is all because God is good. So he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So he says, We must work the works of him who sent while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Um, we're in a, the, all the understanding that I found of this is two different ways. There's Jesus saying, we must work the works while it's day, while I'm on the earth. Um, or as a group, we're in this period of grace, and that's the time that we can reach out and share the gospel because the night is coming when no one can work, when there won't be the opportunity for that. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? He says, he says these things. He spits on the ground, right? He makes mud, mixes it up, and then he anoints the man's eyes with the mud, scoops it off the ground, puts it on his eyes, right? smears it, and he tells him, hey, go wash in this pool, the pool of Siloam. So he went, he washed, and he came back seeing. Now, one of the things I really like about this is this, uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter, so buckle down. Um, but it's a 41-verse chapter, and there's only two verses that talk about like the actual miracle happening and how it happens. The rest of it is just people coming to grips with it, people trying to understand it. As we've seen, the disciples, um, initially, they come theologically. They, they oh, how does this you know, interact with God and his sovereignty and his suffering? We see that the neighbors here, they deal kind of temporarily. These are, I don't know, I think you could break this down into pictures where the disciples are maybe Christians who are a little bit colder and they don't have the love of God, right? They're maybe saved, but they just are only dealing with the mental and nothing with the heart. We're going to move on to the neighbors. And these are people I would say that maybe aren't saved. Maybe they are, I don't know. But you see that they are just, just dealing with kind of the historicity of this. Well, did it really happen? Did it really work? So verse 8, follow with me, guys. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, No, I'm the man. I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, 
The man called Jesus, he made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Okay. Obviously, he doesn't know because right, he was blind when this happened. So Jesus went somewhere. I don't know where he is. I was blind. I th- reading this, I mean, it's super simple. Reading this, I think it's interesting, though, that they question who he is when nothing physical has changed about him. He hasn't changed his clothes. He hasn't changed anything other than he sees, right? So I think non-believers, when a believer gets saved, when their eyes are opened, I think it's interesting that there's a point where they don't recognize you. There's a point where they don't, are you the same guy? You know, is this the same person? And I I find that super interesting because nothing physical has changed with this man. And yet they question who he is. Is this the guy who used to sit and beg? Oh, it's him. And other people, no, it's just someone who looks like him. Very cool. Now, they, what they decide to do is they, they kind of wonder, is this right? Is this wrong? We don't know what to think about this. So they go to the leaders of their day, the religious leaders in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who formerly had been blind. I think it's a really cool title, like to be known by, like, oh, who are you? Oh, I'm the guy that used to be blind. Okay, they bring this guy who had formerly been blind. Now, look at the phrasing of this. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, whatever. So the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Pause there. They brought to the Pharisees the man who formerly had been blind. Do you notice the order of that? Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Like it's, it's very telling, very indicative of where their hearts are at. They were super legalistic. They don't worry about, oh, it's a miracle, right? The main focus is, well, it was a Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Does anyone, um, well, I guess it's kind of a silly question. He doesn't break the Sabbath as God sees it, but he breaks it. Does anyone know how he breaks it in their eyes? I'm going to ask a question. Is there anywhere in the Bible that, you know, making mud and healing someone is wrong on the Sabbath? Is it forbidden? He did work. So something called the Talmud is the, the Pharisees' interpretation of, of Scripture. It's their interpretation of the Old Testament. And to their interpretation, um, they took, you know, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. Well, what is work? And they defined it super legalistically. Work is, um, you know, causing someone to carry their bedroll, as you, you know, in, earlier in the gospel when Jesus heals someone. Work is, you know, even making mud. Not even the healing, but just making mud by itself is considered work. You know, or work is, yes, healing someone. So their understanding of the law was if something is sick or if you're, you know, as Jesus says, if your ox falls in a hole or in a ditch, aren't you going to pull him out, even if it's the Sabbath? Stating it's not what that is. You know, God initially intends the Sabbath all the way through Scripture as a day of rest, as a time of rest. Um, and it's really cool in Hebrews, if you look at it later, just what the rest actually implies and such. But I'm really bad at explaining things, so I'm not going to do that. But so they say, well, this can't be, this man is not from God, verse 16, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? He can't be from God 
because he's broken God's law. Well, it's, as we've seen, it's not their, or it's not God's law, it's their law. And it's a common accusation that they have. Um, if you like a cross-reference for that, in Luke 6, 1 through 11, you have Jesus' disciples, they're walking through the field. And it starts with Luke 6. On a Sabbath, while going through the grain fields, his disciples, the people following Jesus, they plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, what, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, is it wrong to eat? No. But the Pharisees, they see them rubbing this grain in their hands, and they say, well, that's work. You're you know, turning grain into something you can eat. That's wrong. And so Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, but any for the priest to eat, and he gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it actually goes directly from there into the man with the withered hand. But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's literally Lord of the day of rest. Right? And I think it's super interesting, super cool, that when we come to Jesus, when we look at him, you know, come to me, all you who burden, and I will give you rest. He is the Lord of rest. And man's intent that we see so often, the religious leaders, is to turn that as hey, don't do this, don't do that. Even if you're hungry, go, you know, be starving. Don't feed yourself. Don't, you know, heal this man born blind. So that's the first group of Pharisees. We, we see there's two groups continuing on. But others, other Pharisees said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So their thought is, how can a man who's a sinner, well, if, okay, if he is a sinner, how is he healing people? How is he doing these signs? It's a good question. Some of them are just blindly saying, oh, he's a sinner, he's not from God. And the others are actually thinking, okay, well, if he is a sinner, he shouldn't be able to heal. But if he's not a sinner, then we have a problem, right? And there's a division among them. There's a rift, a schism. So they said again to the blind man, they, they all look at this guy, who was blind? Well, what do you say about him? Since he's opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. You know, this blind guy, he says he's a prophet. Now, at first, if you notice with the neighbors, something we're going to see is the blind guy all the way through this chapter has like an increased, an increased revelation of who Jesus is. He comes more and more to grips with who he is. At first, to the neighbors, oh, the man Jesus, now to the Pharisees. Well, he's a prophet because he recognizes, well, he's probably not just a man, but he's a prophet. Now, the Jews, moving on, we're moving and grooving. The Jews, sorry, that's just a good, wake up. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So their initial thought is, well, this probably didn't even happen. Someone's just pulling a wool over our eyes. Um, they didn't believe that he'd been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who'd received his sight. And they asked them, they asked the parents three questions. Is this your son who you say was blind, born blind? How then does he see? Okay, his parents answered, we know that this is our son, we know that he was born blind, but how he does see, we don't know, um, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So, 
This is probably my most relatable group of people. We find the, the disciples, again, were theological. The neighbors were kind of stunned. They didn't know what to think. The Pharisees, they just reject it, right? They have already their own ideas. But the parents, I want you to really think about this. These are the people that, you know, conceived this child that when he was born, you know, they see this blind baby as their own son or their own, you know, their own child. And they recognize, well, now everyone around us thinks that we've done something or that he's done something, you know, and they go through their whole life with a blind baby, like with a blind child. And it's super interesting to me that, I don't know, just in thinking about, um, like, do you think they pray for him to have his sight? Do you think they, like, you know, spent the time, like, really, like, why God questioning this? And I'm super weird to be emotional over. But just um, an interesting thought. Because you really picture these parents, they, you know, raise this kid all the way till he's of age, he's begging out on his own. And when they get the opportunity, when they get the opportunity to say he's healed, you know, hallelujah, and tell everyone what happened, this is interesting. They openly deny, you know, the one who healed him. I don't know. Sorry, I wasn't. Either way, they deny the one who heals him, and they have such an opportunity, and they just put it all on him. You know, I, I don't know why he got healed. I don't know how. I don't know who. And it's interesting that um, it wasn't even, they weren't even saying anyone who declares the Christ to be a healer will be, you know, put out of the Jewish community. It was anyone who was, declares him the Christ. It's an interesting understanding because nowhere, nowhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is anyone who was born blind healed. At no point does that happen. Um, no miracle that's ever been worked. It was a role specifically designed as a sign by God that they would know who their Messiah was. Um, and you can look at Isaiah 35, 5. It's a real cool reference. Or Isaiah 42. I'm going to go to Isaiah 42. But just if you wanted to write those down. But it was specifically something that God said would be only for the Messiah. to open, Only for God specifically. Behold, this is Isaiah 42. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth, till the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Right? I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And he you know, continues to bring forth. But it's interesting. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Jesus in here is saying, I'm the light of the world. And he, you know, opens the eyes of the blind man. Jesus is the only one that does this up to this point. You see it in Acts later, but never with a man who was born blind. And so that's why the Pharisees say, if anyone declares him to be the Christ, 
And so they actually have to deny that, hey, he opened someone's eyes because that's the understanding is that only God can open the eyes of someone blind. So his parents, they have the opportunity to see their son who they raised. Um, They have an opportunity to praise the Lord, to worship him, and even just to thank him among people. You know, and they choose to reject that. They choose to reject him. Um, But super, you know, super convicting. I think it's a really good and telling thing when we as believers can, you know, give praise to God. Hey, I was super sick and I probably could have died, but, you know, God protected me. Whether or not they, you know, reject or receive, it's on them. But you were faithful to declare, you know, God's goodness. So they say, we don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know who. Um, He's of age, ask him. They push it back on him. And the reason his parents said these things, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ or to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Um, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: the fear of man brings a snare. You know, it's a very true reality. So, moving on. Sorry for crying, I know that's kind of weird. So for the second time, they called the man, this is the second time they call him, who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay, period. That's what they think. That's, we know he's a sinner because he doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? So this is the second time they call him. And they say, give glory to God. Um, two different understandings is Joshua 7.19. This is what Joshua says to Achan, who is Achan for some gold in the Old Testament, and he steals and puts it under his tent. Joshua says, hey, give glory to God. We know that you stole these things. That's just how I remember it. Achan, Achan for gold. Um, but they, he, it's like a, a form of confession. Hey, give glory to God. Confess. That's one understanding. Or secondly, just don't glorify this Jesus. Give glory to God. Um, so, and I like what they say. We know, you know, very strong, very bold. We know this man is a sinner. So the blind man answers, Whether he's a sinner, I I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Okay? The blind man's answer, he doesn't deal with maybe what he doesn't know theologically. He doesn't deal with the character of someone else. He just deals with the facts. Hey, I, I don't know if he was a sinner. I was blind, and now I see. It's a very simple answer, but it says so much. No one can refute... You know, just your testimony, as simple as it is. Hey, I don't believe God's real, or I don't think that, you know, God is sovereign and God chooses who's saved. Well, I I don't know about that, but I know that God loves me, that I've heard him, you know, that he's changed my life, that I don't do the things that um, I used to want to do. I don't even desire it. And there's no answer for that, right? And that's what we see here. One thing, though, I was blind and now I see. Well, they say to him, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? Okay, now at this point, they're not really concerned about how he did it or what he did. They're just find, trying to find a crack in the story to bring another accusation because they recognize our accusation is really weak at this point. We don't have a, we don't have a case, right? Because he is before them all. It's kind of like a courtroom. So he says, how does he open your eyes? And this blind man starts to get a little bit bold. He starts to get a little bit um, aggressive. And, you know, he recognizes, I've already told you, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Right? Calls them all out. Do you guys, why? I heard you. I mean, I told you. You heard me. Why do you want to hear it again? 
And they reviled him, or literally they curse him and saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Again, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Um, that could be a perceived slight as, you know, earlier, I don't remember what gospel is, Matt, you might know, but where they call him basically like, you don't have a father, you know, your mom is um, less than moral. So as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. We don't even know who his, you know, his dad is. That's kind of their understanding, their thought. So they call him out, they, or they try and call out Jesus, but the blind guy starts getting bold. So recognize, starts with him, oh, Jesus is just a man. Now Jesus is a prophet. Well, now he's saying, I'm going to follow this guy. You know, prophet, man, whoever he is. He says, do you also want to become his disciple? This guy at this point has already made the decision. I'm following Jesus. You know, I, I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, whatever that means. But I know that I was blind. I know that he healed me. I know that I see. So he says, I'm, you know, do you also want to become his disciple? They revile him. Again, we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. So thus far, the, or the Pharisees have said, we know, like super bold, twice. The man says, oh, you don't know where, he, where he's come from. Verse 30, the man answered, well, this is amazing thing. This is a marvelous thing. You do not know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. And this man actually gives a really strong argument, a really um, just good, not even biblical so much as just rational argument. So he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. They answer him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So notice the Pharisees. Oh, we know he's a sinner. We know God's spoken to Moses. We don't know who this guy spoke to, talking about Jesus. And the blind man just radically, this is an amazing, saint, an amazing thing, or this is the real miracle. You don't know where he comes from, right? He recognizes that this man has been given by God, and that's the real miracle, that you guys don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. Again, that's probably... Um, or at least my understanding of it is not that God doesn't hear sinners at any point, but that you know those who are sinning actively and are rejecting Him. Obviously, God doesn't heed those prayers of like, "Lord, give me a Ferrari because I want to," you know, use it on myself. Good reference for that is James four three. You know that if anyone asks, he asks. Though the reason that you don't have is you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Um, but right, so we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So he recognizes this about Jesus, that Jesus is a worshiper of God, right? Or, I mean, he is God, but he's upright, he's holy, and he's doing what God wants him to do, and God is listening to him. He also states, never since the world began has it been heard anyone was born blind. That's another true statement. And he concludes with, you know, if this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. Just a solid if-then statement. So at this point, the Pharisees don't have an answer. They don't have any sort of objection or anything. All they have is the power of the, you know, their mock court. 
So they answer him, hey, you were born in other sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. So also, notice when it says they cast him out, it's not just, yeah, they threw him out of the courtroom, you know, yeah, they threw him out of the temple or wherever, but also it's a, um, I mean, it's a very communal thing. They cast him out of society, really. It's, they're all, um, they cast him out of the village is kind of the understanding, because if you look later, Jesus hears that they cast him out. It's not just like, oh, I heard they threw you out of the temple. It's like, hey, I heard that you are now kind of excommunicated. But also, notice what side the Pharisees stand on as far as the theological who sinned question. You were born in utter sin. Just, they say, yes, it's absolutely from someone's sin. And would you teach us? Also, notice they're entirely unteachable. You know, they have a divine miracle. They have an irrefutable man who was born blind. He's been testified by his parents, by himself. I'm sure they knew who he was, by the neighbors. And yet, oh, um, and would you teach us? They're 100% um, unteachable. May we never be that way. Moving on. I I think it's interesting. Someone who is unteachable shuts their eyes to the truth. Pretty crazy. Next verse. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, again, Jesus is the initiator, finds him, lets him go go through the suffering and the trial of other people. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I love that. One of the first few people that this man has probably ever seen in his whole life, you know, is like the Messiah. Pretty cool. He probably didn't even know what humans looked like until, you know, that day. I mean, you think about it, he's never seen colors, never seen anything. And Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Literally, it's me. I am the Son of Man. So Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's a, a title from David about who their Messiah is. Again, opening the eyes of the blind. And I don't know where that verse is, but it's definitely in there. But so he says, do you believe in the, in the Messiah? Do you believe that he's coming? And he says, well, who is he that I may believe him? And Jesus, this is thus far the second person that he's revealed himself to be the Messiah to. Does anyone know who the first person is in this gospel? Who is, Jesus fully reveals that he's the Messiah to. It's okay. Woman at the well, yeah. Also another outcast of society that, you know, just interesting. Just an interesting side note. That's John 4.26 in case anyone is writing that down. But so he fully reveals himself to be the Messiah. This man is the second person to have his eyes literally fully open to who their Messiah is. Just a cool, cool picture. And that's ultimately kind of where it concludes. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. He worshiped him? Now, is it okay for one man to worship another man? Is it okay for one man to worship... Um, a prophet. No, right? Is it okay for him to worship someone that you're following, that, that he idolizes? He's a disciple of. No. This man has gone from, well, he's the man Jesus. He's gone from that to, oh, well, he's a prophet, to I'm following him, to, oh, he's the Messiah. And one step further, oh, he's God. Like, I am worshiping him, and he is like Yahweh. So he says he worships him. Also, As a side note, this is a good verse for someone who questions the deity of Jesus. Rather, Jesus was really God. 
Because if he wasn't really God, he wouldn't accept this worship. I mean, you see angels say, hey, don't worship me. I'm not God. Only God gets worship. So this is a good verse for, to bring people to. And they're like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, last chapter he said he was the I am. And this chapter, someone is actively worshiping, like bowing before him in, in worship. And he receives it. And now, as this is happening, Jesus says, this is kind of the key verse, the summation. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus is very divisive. You know, he comes and you're either in the shadow or you're in the light. And that's, I, I think, the point is that those who think they see become blind. They think they have the truth. They don't. And those who recognize I'm blind, like I don't know where to go. I don't know what is true. He reveals himself to. Um, and I, I think it's interesting just thinking about like um, people in our lives, like coworkers and those that sometimes we get angry with or, you know, you see them doing sinful things or wrong things, you know, and you want to accuse, but I, I don't know. You just got to recognize those people are probably blind. They re- don't know that there's a, you know, a higher morality. I mean, yes, they're, I don't know, it's a willful blindness, but recognize that when you see those sinners or people that we used to be, that it's not that, you know, they just don't know any better. They don't have the, the capacity of, oh, I know this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. That's not where they're at. They're at, oh, this is fun. I like doing this. This is wrong. Um, but it should soften our heart when we recognize that they're blind and we get the privilege to, you know, show them where true life is, show them where the light of the world is. So Jesus, I came into this world that those who don't see may see and those who do see will become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we blind? Are we also blind? Like, are you calling us blind, Jesus? And he says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They think they see. And Jesus is ultimately saying, hey, because you say that you see, you don't realize you need me. You're still a sinner. You still have your guilt. I love it. Sorry. Any thoughts? Any uh, questions? I know it's kind of short, but we went through a whole chapter. Maybe it's not short. I don't know. What do you guys think?